Well, my name is Michael Fueling, the lead pastor at the Village Church over in Bartlett. And many of you may not know, but Village Church East and the Village Church of Bartlett, we are sister churches. Together, we are actually one church. So two times a year, our elders at both locations, we swap. And then Craig and I swap pulpits. So this morning, Craig is over at Bartlett bringing the word. And um, it is a joy to be one church with you guys. You may not know this, but um, Pastor Craig... And myself and Pastor Alex, um, who is actually Megan's brother-in-law, Megan who just did announcements, Megan Patterson, um, most of the year, about three-quarters of the year, we all preach on the same sermons together. So every single week we get together, whether it's Craig's Backyard or Starbucks or a restaurant, and we spend two to three hours a week planning sermons together. So this morning, Craig is over opening the Word at Bartlett. Alex is over at uh, Alliance Bible Church in Bartlett where he preaches, and I have the joy to be with you guys. Um, There's actually um, a couple people. I want to introduce you to in the room. One is just walking out because he's got a baby. That's, that's Kirk for Household. He's one of our elders over at the Village Church of Bartlett. And the other is on this side of the room. This is Pastor Mike Boyle. Um, Mike Boyle, is he has been a part of Village Church since 2008. He's been an elder right now. He's our interim associate pastor. And uh, so I want you guys to know Mike. So after the service, i um, love for you to just say hi to them. And then uh, Brent Amato, one of your elders, he's over at Bartlett this morning with Pastor Craig. So we're just doing a big swap this morning. And I uh, love being with you guys. I want to just tell you, um, when Village Church of Barlet was about your age as a church, when we were about five, six years old, we met as a set-up, tear-down church um, in, an, in a middle school in the city of Bartlett. And uh, it was a group of people about this size, and God grabbed their heart and gave them a vision for what could be. And I don't know what the future holds for Village Church East, but I do know um, next week uh, registrations go away. Can I get an amen from someone in the room on that one? Uh, in a couple weeks, we get to reopen get Village Kids here, which is wonderful. And so things are getting back to whatever <laughs> a new normal is going to be. Uh, I'm very excited about that. But um, at Village Church, I want you to know that our elders, um, we serve together to support both locations, and we have a group of elders called our Directional Team Elders, and we talk about, pray for, and plan with Pastor Craig and Pastor John, and, and uh, we, we pray together, and we are for you guys. I want you to know, like, you're just not an afterthought to us. We are regularly talking about your future, your past, your present, and what the Lord is doing here and praying for you. So as a sister church, you may not see it all, but we are 100% with you guys, and uh, never been more excited for your future. Now, with that said, would you guys open up your Bibles to the book of Exodus. Um, in fact, Exodus chapter uh, 21 to 24, open up to Exodus 21. Uh, this is the last of a four-week series called, does anybody know the name of the series? Decisions, good job. And uh, the reason this is called Decisions is because there are some decisions that if they are not mandated by law, we would not naturally make. For example, how many of you would follow the speed limit if it wasn't a law. Anyone? Anyone? Maybe one or two of you, right? So what, what has to happen is some things are so important that they have to be legislated or made law because if they weren't made a law, people are not naturally going to do them. So Exodus chapters 21 to 24, it's the first set of laws after the Ten Commandments. And there are four basic categories of these laws, and you've already talked about the first three. We have justice laws. We have neighbor laws, we have separation laws, and today we're going to talk about the stewardship laws. Now, as we get into this, I want to, I want to ask you to do me a favor. I want you to think about one thing in your life that God has asked you to give him, but you have held back. 
Now, this is rhetorical, meaning don't say it out loud. I want you to put this in the margin of your mind. I want you to hold on to this. And maybe some of you right now, you're thinking, man, I don't, I don't really know what this one thing might be. Here's my expectation. None of you in this room are Jesus. So there's probably a part of your life that you may be holding back from him. And as the sermon goes on, um, I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would bring to light something in your life that you know he wants. And you're kind of like, it's mine. So to help you, um, a noun is a person, a place, or a thing. And so this thing that you're holding back, it could be a person. You know, the Lord wants you to give this relationship back to him. And you're like, no, this is mine. I will not let it go. I need this thing. It might be a place. Might be a business, might be your home, might be something really important to you, and, and you're just like, no, this is mine. You can't touch this. Might be a thing. It could be a home, it could be property, it could be an agenda, it could be money. No, Lord, this is mine. You can't touch this thing. Now, as we go through this message, I want you to have this in your brain. About 15 years ago, a law was created in the Fueling household. My last name is Fueling, so that's my household. Um, this is a very serious law. If you are found violating this law in my home, here are the repercussions. Number one, you will get the evil eye. Number two, you will get a stern verbal rebuke. And number three, you will get a fork stabbed in your hand. All right, so my wife has this interesting habit uh, and here's what she does. So she gets this plate of food. She's very excited about it. Uh, her and I love food, all different kinds of food. And so she gets this plate of food and she looks at the plate and she finds the most scrumptious, most delectable morsel of food. And she cuts it off. She puts it to the corner of her plate and she saves it for the end of her meal as a reward. Now, just help me out for a moment. Does anybody else do this? Anyone? You raise your hand. You're fine if you do. It's no problem. I'm not going like, to call you out or call your name. right? I think it's super weird. I don't get it. I don't understand it. When I see the best bite of food, I want to eat that first. That is very important to me. Now, you have to understand something about myself. I'm the youngest of four, four boys. So in my home, eating was a matter of survival. If you did not get food now, you were not going to eat. You guys know what I'm saying? And so, like, for me, I learned to eat my entire meal within about two to three minutes, right? If you eat with me, it is a problem. In fact, you know that mechanism inside of your body where you don't get full for at least, like, oh, it's like 11 minutes or something? Like, I've already eaten three meals by the time that mechanism kicks in, and then I feel terrible. So I've had to repent of this, and uh, if you see my weight go up and down, I blame um, having three older brothers as a child. So for me, um, I get done very quickly. I'm also what you would call a, an emotional eater as well as a thoughtless eater. So I can be like sitting there and if there's food in front of me, I can consume 1,500 calories without even thinking about it. So here's what will happen. Um, we're sitting there and we've been married for a year or two and, and uh, all of a sudden I'm done with my food. My wife is two bites in and I'm not even conscious of this. I see this morsel of food and I just go boom, boom, done, gone. So fast she doesn't even know it. About a minute or two later, she says, did you, did, you, did you eat? Did you eat this piece of food? Half the time, I had no legitimate conscious rec recollection of this. And I'm like, I have no idea. If it's there, I'm going to eat it. 
And she's like, that is my favorite bite. Now, now here's what happens. Like, I don't even realize I'm doing it. And so she, she goes like this to her food when she's sitting next to me. And if I even go near it, she holds up the fork and she says, try it and you're done. Like, this is a real thing. Talk to my wife about this. Now, all right. So for some, they save the best for last. And in ancient Near Eastern Israel, for the Jews, uh, in God's economy, if you will, um, they actually think very, very differently. So what they do is they think the first is the best. So actually, there's an ancient Near Eastern principle. It's called the principle of first fruits. And so here's what would happen. It wasn't the youngest son that was the best, even though I'm the youngest of four boys, right? It was the firstborn son. It wasn't the final crop that was the most important. It was the first crop. It wasn't just any animal. It had to have been the First animal, for sure. And so God instituted a set of laws, we call them stewardship laws, in the nation of Israel, where God would ensure that they would give him their first and their best for his mission. And this is the principle of first fruits. And this was very, very important to them. And God legislated not just what they would give, how much they would give, and when they would give. Now, let's just agree on something. Does God care? how you as followers of Jesus handle things that are of high value to you? The answer to everybody else is yes. God cares deeply about how you handle valuable things. And so we're going to unfold these stewardship laws, and we're going to look at really five principles of stewardship laws that apply today as it pertains to first fruits. So um, Exodus chapter 23, verse 10, uh, and here's the first principle of first fruits. God's Greatest concern is not my money, but my maturity. God's greatest concern is not my money, but my maturity. Let me just ask you a question. Does God need your money? No. If you don't give your money to God, can he get it elsewhere? 100%. Does God need your talents? I mean, you're amazing people. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure all of you are wonderful, right? But does God need your talents? No, if you don't want to give your talents to God, he'll go get it elsewhere and you will miss out on some of these blessings. I need you to understand this on the very front end. When we talk about anything of value to you, right? Our hearts, they get really protective. They're like, ah, but this one thing, don't touch it. You can't have this thing. And I just want to tell you that God is ultimately not desperate. God wants something bigger than the thing. We're going to get to that. Now look with me, Exodus chapter 23, verse 10. Here's what it says. For six years, you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year, you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And when they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. So imagine um, you hear this in your Israel, and you go to Yahweh, and you say this. So you're telling me, you want me to take an entire year off of work and give all of the proceeds that I could have made to people who didn't work for it? And then what they don't want, you want me to leave it for the animals to eat. Does this sound crazy to any of you? Right? Now, if the Lord went to you and said, hey, I want you to take a year off of work. Now, for some of you, you had a, a year off. Maybe you were working, but many of you were at home. How was that? You're like, send me back to work, right? Like marriages were really exposed in families in this last year. Don't say amen to that because that would be 
they're probably sitting next to you. Um, now here, I want you to hear me. Uh, if you are a student or a kid in this room, I need you to listen. Is there ever a rule that God is going to give you that is pointless? The answer is never. There is never one thing God will tell you to do that is pointless. Everything has a purpose. Everything. We use the word arbitrary. There are no arbitrary, random, or purposeless, or meaningless laws. God never wastes his breath or wastes his time. Let me, let me give you an illustration of this, right? Uh, if your parents go to you and they say, clean your room, and your response is, I don't want to clean my room. Some of you as adults, your husband or your wife, they say to you, it's time to clean your room, and, and you don't want to do it. But here's what we found with our children, right? When we tell them to clean their room, they almost never want to do it, but you know what happens every single time they clean their room? They find things that they lost, and they find things that they broke. They're like, oh, I didn't realize that was under this entire pile of stuff. But here's the deal. Your mom and dad, they're like, clean your room, and here's what your mom and dad are trying to do for you. They're trying to teach you how to take care of what you have, because if you can learn how to take care of what you have now, you're going to be an awesome adult. What your parents are trying to get you to do is to be an awesome adult who gives God glory and doesn't have to go through all of the trial and frustration unnecessarily that so many other kids are going to have to do when they they grow up. And so God never gives a a law that is pointless. Now, if you are the Israelites and you get this law, you're like, how are we supposed to make it if we take an entire year off of work? Well, let me show you how good God was to give this group of people this law. Here's what he did. He was teaching them skills by implementing this law that they would never, ever be able to know otherwise. Let me give you some examples. God is teaching this young nation how to rest. Not just accrue, accrue, more, more. When you're poor and you start making money, do you want to stop making money? Not at all. If you have lived a life of lack, and all of a sudden you go to a land of plenty, and you have the opportunity to make more and more and more, guess what this new nation is going to be tempted to do? Work, 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 work. And the most important thing to them is going to be money, possessions, status, and wealth. And God's like, listen, actually, you know what we're going to do? I'm going to implement this law. It's going to be complete nonsense on the surface, but what it's going to do, it's going to teach you that there's something more valuable and important than just accruing more money. God is teaching this young nation to prioritize people over profit. So one day a week, they had the Sabbath. You had to spend time with God and your family in intentional relationship. Well, once every seven years, basically most of the nation took an entire year off. And guess what they're forced to do? Spend time with God and with each other and grow deeper relationships with one another. Like how gracious of God to say more important than money is rest. More important than money is relationships with myself and with the people in your nation and your family. God is teaching this young nation to how to plan and to save. All right, raise your hand if you are a saver. Anyone? We got a handful. Raise your hand if you are a spender, right? Rarely, by the way, in a marriage, do you get two savers and two spenders. Usually you get a saver and a spender. It's a thing. And then what happens when there's a saver and a spender? Conflict all the time. It's like, oh my gosh, why did you spend so much money? Well, I'm just being generous. Sure, okay, fine. Well, here's the deal. When you got your first paycheck, go back in your brains, the first time you ever made money, what did you want to do with that money? 
put in the bank, or go out and buy something. How many of you, it was your first impulse to say, God, everything I have is yours, and I'm going to give this first paycheck to you. I'm going to call up a nonprofit. I'm going to support a missionary. I'm going to find somebody who's homeless. I'm going to give them, I'm going to give this. How many of you would have that have been impulsive or natural for your heart? None. And the point is this. It is not the inclination of the human heart to practice first fruits. So for the nation of Israel, God had to legislate this. This was not normal and it was not natural. God is teaching this young nation how to plan, how to save. So here's what would happen. They lived in an agricultural uh, society. If there was a famine, they were not prepared because they would have to spend six years preparing for the seventh year. And so they were ready for almost anything. Do you see how this seemingly on the surface principle of first fruits in the land sounded dumb at first? But when you really got into it, God was up to something kind and generous. One of the other things I love about the first fruits is that um, he says, I want you to make sure that the poor are taken care of. Because what is, the, what is going to be the temptation of a group of people who were treated like dirt by Egyptians? Let me give you an example. What do hurt people do to other people? Typically, they hurt people, do they not? And what do abused people typically do to other people? They typically abuse them. And what are abused, hurt slaves probably going to do to the poor in their community when they get into this new land? Probably exactly what they did when they came from a different place. And God's saying, no, in my nation, we don't exploit the poor. We don't isolate the poor. We don't punish the poor. We make sure that we take care of the poor. We make sure that they always have something to eat. So you leave the corners of your field so they can eat. And then once a year, you give them free reign over all of this. We are going to be very different than every other nation in the world. I'm going to come back to the main point here. God's greatest concern is not my money, but my, say it with me, my maturity. Number two, the second principle of first fruits is first fruits giving follows the rhythm of my income or whenever assets come in, it is a very normal rhythmic thing. Again, when you get paid, is God saying, I want you to be generous and I want you to give 10% every single day. You'd be broke, right? That's what the government wants from you. We just <laughs> God says, basically, to Israel, you're going to give as you get paid. So three times a year, I want you to notice this, in Exodus chapter 23, 14, uh, here's what it says, three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. And this is when they would bring their first fruits. They would bring at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's verse 15. and verse 16, it was the Feast of the Harvest. At the end of verse 16, it was the Feast of the Ingathering. And, and this was their, we'll call it their stewardship, tithing, and first fruits rhythm. God was very realistic with them. But here's what I want you to get. God is trying to go deeper than just their money. God is not ultimately concerned about their money. First fruits would ensure that every bit of wealth, everything of value that came into their homes would be consecrated to God, would be set aside for him. Everything. Consecration means to intentionally devote something for God's use. And this is what is so important about consecration. It is not the impulse of the human heart. This is not natural. If we don't choose to consecrate the things of value in our lives to the Lord, we will hoard them for ourselves or spend them on ourselves, and we will devote everything to ourselves, which is the human heart's impulse, is it not? 
And so God's like, listen, I'm going to create a new nation with a different rhythm. I, I, I want you to understand this. I want you to consecrate every part of your life to me, your relationships, where you live, your home. It's not just your income. It's everything. I want you to set aside everything for me. Now come back to, if you will, to the question I asked you at the beginning. What is the thing that you are holding back from God and you have said to him, maybe out loud or in your heart, you can't touch this. This is mine. Is it a person? Is it a place? Is it a thing? Keep thinking about that. Here's the third principle of first fruits. God doesn't simply require the consecration of my assets, but of my entire life. Chapter 23, verse 17, I love this. Three times in the year shall all of your males appear before the Lord. The males were the representative heads of the family. And symbolically, here's what is happening. The husband would come before the Lord at these feasts, and he would not just bring the first fruits of his assets and income, but he would bring his entire life and say, my life is yours, my family is yours, my children is yours, my assets are yours, the things I value are yours. There's no part of my life that is hidden from you. And there is no part of my life that I will hold back from you. I will submit every part of my life under the authority of your word. And I will seek to submit it under your authority because everything that is under your authority is blessed and it thrives. I I want to talk to you about the thing here, this thing that you're holding back from God. Anything that you hold back from God, I want you to hear me, it is in danger. The most... People typically put things in this box, like, ah, I can't touch this box, because you love it. I want to look at you and say, if you love it, the most foolish thing you can do is keep it from the Lord. You keep it from the Lord, it is in grave danger. You give it to the Lord, who knows what he can do with it. But if you really love this thing that has come into your brain, this person's place, this thing, no, it's mine, you can't have it. If you really love it, it has never been more in danger than when you hold it back from the Lord. All right, if you have your Bibles, go back one chapter with me, Exodus chapter 22, verse 29. Here's the fourth principle of first fruits. I love this one. God doesn't negotiate on first fruits. Look at verse 29. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest. And I imagine somebody's like, well, Lord, okay, but what about the outflow of the presses? And from the outflow of your presses. There is no law given that is a waste of words. Why did God have to tell them, do not delay to consecrate all things of value to me? Because the human heart impulse is to delay giving God our first and our best for his mission. And here's what God's saying. I, I don't really negotiate on this principle. You give your first and your best for his mission. Now, you might be 13 years old. You don't have an income. And in case you think we're talking about money, you're going to see in a minute, this is actually, that's the least of the concerns here. What is your first? What is your best? What are the things that you have that are the most important? And are you willing 
to give those back to the Lord and say, however I can use these for the kingdom of God, I will do that. All right, here's the fifth and last principle. Whatever gets my first gets my heart. What does the Lord want from you more than anything else? Your heart. Let me just say this again. Um, Does God want your money? The answer is? Does God need your money? Is he like, oh, if only Village Church East had more money. No. Uh, What could the Lord do if he had the whole heart of every person who attended this community? Unstoppable. God wants your whole heart. And he understands something because he designed us and made us. Whatever gets your first gets your heart. Remember, let's go back to this, this box, whatever's in this thing. You can't touch this God. It's mine. You can't go near this. God knows that whatever is here ultimately has your heart. Because typically for most Christians, what we're holding back is our first and our best. Get money out of your brain. If you think this is a, a message about money, you're missing the point. Whatever has your first has your heart. Whatever you give to first, whatever you, whenever you get anything of value, whatever you do with it first, that thing has your heart. Look at what he says in verse 29. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. And this is in stark contrast to not just the Egyptian gods, but particularly the Canaanite gods, this nation that they're going to be running into. And Yahweh is fundamentally different because here's what would happen with your firstborn. If you worshiped a Canaanite god, they would heat up a big metal calf. They'd light it on fire. It's a big, ugly thing. It would be scalding hot. And, and the false gods of Canaan would require you to take your firstborn and to put it on that burning hot calf and sacrifice it alive to it. Evil, terrible, hideous. And Yahweh is saying this, nope, we're going to do something different. You're going to bring me your firstborn, but, but what you're going to do is something very different. You're going to consecrate it. This is very similar to what we do in child dedication, by the way, where we say, we are giving this child to you. Whatever you want for this child, we will support, we will champion, we will come alongside of you. You love this child more than we could ever love this child as its parents. You designed this child, God. You love this child. We're going to consecrate this child to you. I want to tell you a story about my mother and father-in-law. Um, my wife, when she was in high school, there was a three-week mission trip to Ecuador going to uh, an Indian tribe that had killed five missionaries about three, four decades prior it was a very violent tribe, and, and the gospel had come into this tribe, and many of them had come to Christ, and this entire tribe had been transformed by the gospel. But my mother and father-in-law had to make a decision with a young high school girl. Do I send her into the uh, uh, rainforest of Ecuador to a tribe that kills missionaries, historically, uh, do we take this risk and we can't go with them? And, and they prayed about it and they realized that like, you know what, this is going to be a life-changing experience for our daughter. And they released her and let her as a young high school, high school student go for three weeks into the rainforest of Ecuador with a Indian tribe that had killed missionaries. Now, do you think as a mom and a dad that took like a lot of trust in the Lord? You better believe it to this day. It's one of the most formative events in my wife's life. She still talks about it to this day. And what my mother and father-in-law realize is that this 
this woman, this young woman, my wife, she is the Lord's. And as they prayed about it, just this reminder that like, you know what? The Lord will protect her. The Lord has us. And it ended up being one of the most transformational experiences in her entire life. So God says, I want your firstborn. Why the first? Because they have the most influence. Because they're going to inherit the family fortune, if you will. Because whoever gets the first, whatever the first does, if the first gives his heart to the Lord, then statistically the rest will give their heart to the Lord. And God also understands that as a parent, when you had your first kid, moms and dads, you remember your first child? What did you want to do with it? Protect it at all costs from all potential harm, no matter what, so help you God, right? No? You are a unique and awesome mother. For most mothers, that is their instinct. And God's like, no, you're, I get it. You're going to give this to me. You're going to consecrate it to me. But I'm going to show you that I am not like the other false gods. I'm not going to require your child's life. I want your heart. Whatever gets my first gets my heart. All right, I'm going to share with you two so what's. First fruits will change your life by, tra- by transforming your heart. Remember, whatever gets your first gets your heart. And what does God want more than anything else? He wants your heart. If you think about the things that are the most value to you, for some of you, your children and grandchildren are of far more value than your money. For some of you, it's, again, you guys are thinking back in your brain, this is a giving sermon. This is an everything sermon. <laughs> Think about the things that are of the most value to you and God wants all of them consecrated under his authority, used according to the way that the word of God says to use it so that it is not in danger. And here's what happens. When you give God your first and your best, your heart will follow. And if you, I want to say this again because I want this just to be in your brain. If you really love this thing that you're holding back from God, you will no longer hold on to it, but you will consecrate it to the Lord, otherwise it is in grave danger. Here's my second so what for you. Restructure your life so that God gets your first and your best for his mission. I want to give you some categories. Here, here's the easiest one. We'll just get it, we'll get it off the table on the front end. Um, think about your money. Do you give generously and faithfully to build the kingdom of Jesus? Because where your money goes first, your heart quickly follows. All right, let's talk about your stuff. What are you holding back to be used in God's kingdom? No, it's mine, but what if they break it? What if they don't appreciate it? No, it's mine. I need to keep it perfect and safe and nice and shiny and it's got to be done just right. It's mine. You can't touch it. What if the Lord was like, no, I actually want to use this for my kingdom. Would you do it? What about your property? Hospitality, by the way, it's a biblical command. We open up our, our homes so that people can be cared for and loved well. What about your property? Do you, are you committed to using the place you live to build the kingdom of God? If the Lord opens up an opportunity and you're like, man, we could actually probably, like, we could probably use our home. I kind of, I don't know that I'm able to lead a community group, but doggone it, we could host one. Ah, But then I'm going to have to clean every week. Okay. 
Welcome to every other community group leader on the planet. What do we do? We clean our homes before people come. Why? Because I have three children and we're total slops. But is it worth obeying God to clean my home? For sure. Isn't it amazing all of the things that we're going to, yeah, but if I give you that, God, then I'm going to have to do this, I'm going to have to do that. And he's like, oh my goodness. Just give, just don't hold it back. If I ask you to use it for my kingdom, do it. Let's keep going. Your singleness. One of your greatest assets is your time. But God, I need eight hours a day of alone time and 12 hours of sleep, and I've only got four hours to hang out with my friends. Like, if you are single, you have so much kingdom capacity and power, like unbelievable amounts. Ask the Lord, Lord, I have all this time. How can I consecrate my time? How do you get the first and the best of my time? Are you young in this room? You know what you have? One of the greatest assets in the entire world? Boundless energy. Come set up on Sunday mornings. Mom and dad are like, ah, it's real early. My dad got up with me every Saturday night at 1.30 in the morning from the time I was 11 years old until I was 16 and took me on a paper route every single Sunday night. We got home at 6.30 a.m. My mom got up at, at 12.30 a.m. on Friday night uh, to take me on the paper route and we got home at about 3.30 or 4.30 every single Saturday night. My mom and dad taught me that if you want to build something character in your children, you will go to great lengths to do it and to sacrifice. You've got energy? Show up. Help your kids show up. You've got time? Use it. Consecrate it to the Lord. Lord, this is my first and my best. I want to make sure before I schedule my entire week, I want to make sure that I plot out for you how I'm going to build and invest in your kingdom, your children. Lord, they are yours. I want to develop kingdom habits in them. I want to grow them spiritually. Here's, here's the, last, the last thing, your soul. You might be here and uh, you might have been dragged to church by your husband, your wife, your children, your friend. And when you think about the thing in this box that like you, you can't touch it, God, it's, it's really actually your soul. And I have just wonderful encouragement for you and God loves you so much. He gave his first and his best for you so that your soul can be forgiven and redeemed by God. Christians have a, a practice. It goes back um, 2,000 years and it's called communion. And it's interesting because in communion, uh, there are really two big declarations that we make. Two two big things we do. The first is we, we take time and we remember what God has done for us, but then we make two declarations. Uh, the first declaration we make is a belief de- declaration. We say, I personally believe, we don't say this out loud, but in our hearts, this is what we're saying by partaking of communion. I believe that Jesus Christ is God, that he died on the cross for my sins, that he was raised from the dead, he's coming back, and that anybody who believes in Jesus is forgiven and saved. And when we, when we partake of communion, we're, not, we're saying, I personally, me, I believe this. But there's a second declaration that we're making. When we part, partake of communion, we are declaring that I have given my soul personally, freely to God. I've declared him my God, my king, and my master, and I'm no longer 
the king, God, and master of my own life. I now live under his authority. I don't get to determine all the rules for my life, but I look to his word to determine those. And so I want to encourage you, maybe you're here today, maybe you were watching um, online, and you have never given your soul to God. We're going to, again, celebrate communion here, and and, uh, here's what I want to encourage you to do. If today you want to personally trust in Jesus, I want to encourage you to partake of communion with us. And when we partake, this is the declaration you're making. I declare that I believe that I'm a sinner. Jesus is God and he died on the cross for my sins. God raised him from the dead. He's coming back and salvation is not by the accrual of good works, but it is by faith in Christ alone. And the second thing you're going to declare when you take this is, God, you have my soul. I'm no longer going to hold this back from you. And so here's how communion works. You might be visiting with us for the first time. Um, doesn't matter where you go to church. If you have personally trusted in Jesus, we want to invite you to partake of communion with us because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. There are some kids in the room. Maybe there's some kids online. And here's the, the simple rules for kids. Mom and dad, number one, it's totally up to you whether or not your kids take communion. We just ask that they have personally trusted in Jesus uh, in order to partake of communion. So we're going to have a time of silence here in just a moment. This is an opportunity for you to reflect, to thank God, to confess sin. And uh, when that silence is done, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to sing together. During the song, you'll see that there's tables up here to my right and to my left. And there are elements in the table. I want to encourage you during the song, uh, go up and grab those elements and come back to your seat as we sing. Um, After the song is over, I'm going to come up, we're going to read some scripture, and we're going to partake of communion together as a symbol of our unity in Jesus. So let's have a time of silence, and then during the music, you can grab the elements.